encourage you all to stand at this time as we return this morning to the book of Jude and a message I call Remembering the Past and that will become evident why as we go through our reading beginning in verse 5, Jude 5. I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. And the angels, which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness, under the judgment of the great day, even as Sodom and Gomorrah, and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. May God bless the reading of his word today. It's my prayer. You may be seated. Preaching through this morning, uh, continuing on in our series in the short book of Jude. Remember that Jude wanted to write a book about salvation. It would have been a book much shorter, no doubt. uh, Similar, perhaps in content, to the book of Romans that discussed the doctrine of salvation in such incredible detail. Jude wanted to do that, but the Holy Spirit had another plan. And instead, he wrote to address a serious problem, a problem that continues even today because the Christian faith is under fire. And that's exactly what Jude said. I found it necessary to write and encourage you to contend for the faith. And when he mentions the faith in that context, he is not talking about Our faith, by which we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and are saved, what we call saving faith. He's not talking about what the Bible says when it talks about we walk by faith and not by sight, what we call living faith or walking faith. But instead, he is talking about the faith in the sense of that revealed body of truth, that collection of the truth of God. Today, we would call it the Bible and do call it the Bible So when he speaks of the faith being under attack, it was under attack then, it's still under attack today. And it's not so much the persecution, though, of the faith from without, but the perversion of the faith from within that Jude was going to be warning us about. I saw an interview, some of you may have seen it, of a preacher named Matt Chandler. He's from the Village Church, one of the larger churches in the United States. An HBO series uh, did a show, apparently hadn't seen that. I just saw it on Facebook. Uh, I saw the, uh, the, heard about the show, though, that they were doing on the future of evangelicalism in America. They were discussing the fact that the SBC had declined the Southern Baptist Convention, which repeatedly portrays itself as the largest Protestant denomination in the United States. Uh, And they had declined by 1.3 million members in the last 10 years, 200,000 last year alone. Um, And that in spite of the fact that they'd added 2,900 new churches in that same decade. Put that in perspective, that's about the size of the entire American Baptist Association, ABA, of which we're a part. Now, you say, well, why does that matter? Well, it matters to us all. If somebody were to ask, well, how our association then, the ABA, is doing, I would reply, I don't know. 
You say, why don't you know? Well, our churches are so focused on our independence that we don't really report a lot of statistics, to be honest with you, so it's hard for us to tell. We don't know. We can't collect how many people are in all of our churches every Sunday morning, how many additions we have, how many people we baptize. Uh, we just don't report that very well. I can tell you about our church. And uh, our church went through a tough time in 2014. We're still... Still working hard to recover, to get back to where we were at that time. Thank God he is blessed abundantly. And you can look around today and, and uh, I hope you've experienced a very healthy uh, worship service. I sure had a good time. I can't, I can't speak for anybody but myself. But I had a really good time today. And it's good to see a crowd. We got folks scattered all over the country as always. Uh, I keep thinking one of these Sundays they're all going to show up at once. And uh, I don't know where we're going to put them. But uh, I'll figure that out when I get there. Um, honestly, it, it's, it's not that decline that we're seeing that really is of great concern to me. What I worry about is the fact that evangelicalism as a whole isn't reaching the huge and growing secular crowd in America. A lot of the de decline that you see in denominational churches is easily explained. A lot of folks are leaving them and going to the non-denominational, non-traditional church crowds. That's simply a matter of fact. It's happening. Uh, there's a lot of reasons behind that. I could talk about it a lot. I'm, I'm not going to this morning. I'm just presenting it to you as a matter of fact. What bothers me is that America as a whole then, seeing all the work that all of our churches are doing, all the addition of all the new churches that are coming around, and yet the percentage of secular, unsaved, unchurched people in America is increasing rapidly. And we're seeing them go from being skeptical toward religion as a whole to being outright hostile toward the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, churches follow all the trends and they back away from solid biblical preaching and teaching, de-emphasize membership that requires people to make a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, follow Him in baptism publicly, and then identify themselves with the church. If they turn away from that in favor of just attending, uh, do, go through all of the trends, then we're not going to see, unfortunately, that have a big impact on the secular crowd. Because let me tell, explain to you why. The gospel is still the power of God into salvation. When people reject the gospel, what is our plan B exactly? There's not one. There's not one. But can't we go and try a lot of different things? Well, I'm, I'm, what exactly are we going to try? When you believe as I believe that the gospel is still the power of God into salvation, that it is still the preaching of the cross by which Jesus keeps his promise. When he said, and I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men to me. I like what Ron Dunn said many years ago when he said that people who reject the cross of Jesus Christ do not reject him for something else but for nothing else. Because it is the preaching of the cross that was foolishness to the world in the first century. It's still foolishness today. And quite frankly, I fear. I fear the judgment of God more than I fear the disapproval or the rejection of culture. We must 
continue to preach the truth of God's Word. And yet, as I wrote about last week in our, in our weekly message, I, I think a lot about what Jesus asked in Luke chapter 18 and verse 8. He said, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? I think a lot about what he said when he said, As it was in the days of Noah. Think about that a minute. Well, at a time when faith is under fire, Jude sets out then to remind us of some things. And it was under fire then. It's still under fire today. And interestingly, what he wants to remind us of has to do with how God's judgment fell on those who pretended, those who were professors or, or, were, or were professors of the faith, but not possessors of the faith. Uh, those who once knew the truth, and, and yet they turned away from it. And he shows them then his coming under the judgment of God. He wants to remind us about this because we're inclined to forget. You know, I, as the, old, the older I get, to be honest with you, my forgetter is working better all the time. Uh, my, my knees, my ankles, my elbows, my hands, my shoulders, my neck. And just, but my forgetter is working real good. And y'all identify. Some of y'all don't know about that yet. That's okay. Time will take care of it for you. You see, Jude was a preacher, and as a preacher, he understood that just because somebody had been uh, told something one time doesn't mean that they're going to remember it forever. And a big part of what preaching is then is just going again and again and again to the Word of God because we need those constant reminders. It's no guarantee just because we preached it one time and you heard a Sunday school class about it one time when you were 9 or 10 years old, it doesn't mean that you still remember it today or that you're still living by it. We need constant reminders, and you knew that. All the way back in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 6, a great passage. So it shall be when the Lord your God brings you into the land of which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you large and beautiful cities which you did not build, houses full of good things which you did not fill, hewn out wells which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant. When you have eaten and are full, then beware lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. Something about God's people. We tend to get so busy enjoying the blessings that we forget the blesser. And that's exactly what happened. It still happens today. God does not expect us to live in the past, but we are to remember it and learn from it. And today he brings up three specific examples. And the first one, of course, is Israel itself. He said, I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. Jude gets right into it and showing conclusively that many of the people who were brought out of Egypt were in fact unbelievers. Now, we can't jump the gun and say that everyone who did not make it into the promised land was lost because, remember, that included Moses and Aaron, okay? But Jude tells us that many of them were destroyed because they were 
unbelievers. They believe not. Some of the people, therefore, who came out of Egypt were simply not believers. They were professors of faith, but not possessors. Now, remember, they came out of Egypt. They walked through the Red Sea. They ate the manna in the wilderness. They drank the waters uh, that were made drinkable at Marah that formerly were bitter. Uh, They saw the pillar of cloud by day. Uh, They saw the pillar of fire by night. They They saw the glory of God come down upon the tabernacle. They saw Moses, after he received the law, coming down from the mountain with his face shining so brightly that they couldn't even stand to look at him because Moses had been with God. They'd seen all of those things. They'd experienced all those things. But they were lost. It's amazing what kind of experiences people can have with the Lord. What kind of great things they can see from God and still be unsaved. Are we all that different today? (laughs) I don't see how people can walk outside and see some of the beautiful sunrises that we've seen and sunsets that we've seen in the last week and not believe in God. How can you look at the stars? How can you walk around on God's earth, breathe God's air, drink God's water, eat God's food, live God's life? How can we look in the mirror and see ourselves fearfully and wonderfully made and not be a believer? God does incredible things all the time. But in spite of the fact that they saw all of those outward signs, they were not going to heaven. They died under the judgment of God as unbelievers. Now I want to be quick to point out to you that once a person is truly saved, genuinely saved, you can never, ever lose Your salvation. Never. The question that we need to ask, and the question really that Jude is presenting to us, is do you know for sure where you are sitting right now this morning that if you were to die, you'd go to heaven? Do you know for sure that you're a child of God? You see, the children of Israel had had all those experiences. They'd seen all those signs. They ate the the manna. They drank the water from the rock. And yet they died and went to hell. They died as unbelievers. Though they had seen all those things. That makes it important for me to ask you this morning. Do you know for sure where you're sitting right now? Now if I ask you today, are you married? I don't think many of you would say, well, you know, back in August of 1978, that's what I, would, I could say potentially, back in August of 1978, yeah, yeah, I was married then. See, you don't have to say that because if I ask you, are you married, and you say, yes, I'm married, <laughs> then obviously you were married at some point back there in the past. Do you understand? Do you see that? If you're married today, it's because you were married at some point back in the past. But the important thing is, are you married right now? You see, the the great explanation of our faith is not about some experience that we had, although that's an important thing. But the question is, do you know where you're sitting right now? That you are a child of God, that you've experienced the new birth, that you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore you've been saved. I'm not preaching this to create doubt in your mind. But if that doubt is there, you need to deal with it. 
I'd rather you be doubtful of almost anything than to live in doubt of your eternal destiny. No more important question can ever be settled in anybody's life than the issue, do I know Jesus Christ as my Savior and my child of God? Israel, you see, had made a profession. They had come out of Egypt. They were headed to the promised land. They were baptized under Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They saw all those experiences at all those times, but they died in unbelief. That's example number one. Then he brings up the angels. Verse 6, the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains unto darkness, unto the judgment of God. Now, the Bible gives us only the barest glimpses into the angelic rebellion that occurred around Lucifer, the shining angel of light. We know that he drew a third part of the angels with them, that those angels created by God, designed uh, for his service and the service of his people, that all enjoyed his presence, that all experienced heaven, And yet a third of the angels rebelled against God. Now Jude doesn't go into all this any more than any of the other biblical writers do. But his point is easy to follow. And it's well explained for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 when he talked about false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself, is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it's no great thing if the ministers, his ministers, also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness. His ministers. His ministers. Whose ministers? Satan's ministers. Transformed into the ministers of righteousness whose end shall be according to their works. These angels then, like their master, the devil, looks like an angel of light, but they're not because they're carrying chains that bind them to the everlasting darkness. Why are they chained? Well, can you imagine what they'd do in this world if God let them loose? Some years ago, this guy who had a TV show, now he has, I understand, a Las Vegas program. His name is Angel, by the way, or calls himself Angel, Chris Angel. Do I believe Chris Angel is an angel? Oh, no. No, not at all. But you might remember some of his shows. They were fascinating there for a while. Boy, everybody liked them. Man, did you see this? No, I never watched the show. I just had to hear about it and look it up online. And man, I saw him walk on water. I saw him walk on a building, walk up a building. How did he do it? I don't know. Is he an angel? No. Chris Angel is not a pebble in a rock pile to what a real angel would do to deceive people if God turned them loose. They have incredible power. And these angels that kept not their first estate are transforming themselves into angels of light. Can you imagine how many people would say, but I saw an angel from heaven. Surely, surely I can trust an angel from heaven. Surely. Paul said in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 8, but though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. Let him be accursed. You see, the angels had the same taste of heaven 
They experience the literal presence of Almighty God, that they're in the very presence of God. Some of them got full of themselves. Some of them were lifted up with pride. In the very presence of God then, they chose rebellion in spite of their incredible position. They faced the judgment of God. So you're following his progression. Israel made a profession. But in spite of their profession, they were judged as unbelievers. The angels had a great position, exalted position, in the very presence of Almighty God. And yet in spite of their position, they came under the judgment of God. Then he brings up Sodom and Gomorrah, verse 7, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Now the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to this day are remembered primarily because of their involvement in sexual immorality. It's right here in the, in the passage, not just fornication, but a grievous form uh, Jude calls it going after strange flesh. Uh, we know that the sin so prevalent in the city of Sodom was a sin of homosexuality. We might wonder then, why would he bring these people up in a warning about believers, people who claim to be believers, but they're really not? Well, in Genesis chapter 18 and verse 32, we have that intercession by Abraham as he cried out to God and he said, O Lord, uh, or rather he said, O let not the Lord be angry and I will speak yet, but this once peradventure ten shall be found there. And God said, I will not destroy it for ten's sake. And God would have spared the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah if they could find ten righteous people. In that city. Genesis chapter 19 and verse 12 tells us how that played out as the angels came to Lot. Have you anyone else here? They said, son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, and whomever you have in the city, take them out of this place, for we will destroy this place, because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who had married his daughters and said, get up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. But to his sons-in-law, he seemed to be joking. Lot had two daughters. He had a wife. That's four people. He had two married daughters and two sons-in-law. That's, uh, that's four more. The Bible says he had sons. That's at least two more. And that doesn't count any grandkids. If he had that many kids, if it's like my experience, he, he probably had a whole lot more in his family than just ten. Why did Abraham stop at ten? He was counting on Lot having won his own family to the Lord. And if he had, if he had... God would have spared the cities. One of the things that Jesus tells us that we are as believers in Christ is we're like salt. We're the salt of the earth. And one of the things that salt does is preserves. And the presence of just ten believers in that incredibly wicked city would have preserved the whole place from the judgment of God. You might wonder from time to time why that God hasn't already moved in judgment against the United States of America. Look in the mirror. God still has a lot of people in this country, far more than 10. 
We are the salt. And one of the things that the salt does is it preserves it. You see, here were people who were Lot's family. They should have been believers. They were known as believers. Abraham thought they were believers undoubtedly, but they were not. Jude tells us then that God's judgment on those cities were set forth as an example. As Jesus said in Luke 17 and 32, remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. See, no wonder Jesus said if the salt loses its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? I've mentioned the salt quite a bit. Lot's wife was turned into a pillar of what? Isn't that interesting? Hmm. You see, as believers, we are a people who God intends to have an influence on our culture, and we do. Lot's family fooled Abraham, but he didn't fool God. One preacher put it this way, you can stand in the choir of life and mouth the words and fool everybody. But someday we'll all sing a solo before God. And if you got any music in in you, then you know the difference. Someday we'll all sing a solo before God. Why was there such dissension and rebellion and constant complaining when God brought the children of Israel out of the wilderness? Well, it's a simple answer. Many of those people were not saved. They weren't believers. They may have thought they were, but God knew better. They were not genuinely saved people, and they died in unbelief. Why was there war in heaven? Because there were angels who stood in the presence of God and basked in His presence and glory and yet were caught up in the prideful rebellion of Lucifer and were cast out because iniquity then was found in them. Why did judgment fall crushingly on the cities of the plains so long ago? Because those who should have been righteous and who could have preserved the city from such an awful fate were in fact pretenders. They did not possess saving faith and the overwhelming weight of Jude's argument falls rather crushingly when we understand then that this was all all the examples he brought were from the Old Testament (laughs) and we have a far greater reason to believe today than those believers of the Old Testament did because we see the cross of Jesus Christ where God's greatest work of love was, was performed and his great act of redemption played out same God who destroyed the unbelievers in Israel, who chained angels in darkness and who burned the ground beneath Sodom and Gomorrah will not spare today those who reject His Son, no matter how well-intentioned they might be. So how do we stand then and contend for the faith in the midst of this growing uh, opposition? How uh, do we deal with the fact that uh, uh, we face, uh, we have a faith that is under fire and that Christianity is, is, is declining uh, in our nation in many places, in many ways. And, and uh, it's not just declining, but it's, it's facing flat out opposition from many, many people. How do we respond to this? Well, Jude tells us, contend for the faith. 
things I'm about to give you are not original with me. They've been around for a long, long time. But there's six things that I think that we can do that are a part of this contending for the faith. Number one, uh, that is, we need to submit to the faith. And by submitting to the faith, I'm talking about making sure that we are truly born again. There's only one way to be saved, and that is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. So we need to submit to the faith. We need to study the faith. That is, the principles of our faith must be learned. Must be learned. We must show the faith. That is, we live it. We practice out then what we believe. We stand for it. I don't mean that we need to be belligerent or mean-spirited or argumentative. But we must hold on to it. And as we have the opportunity to present the faith, then do so. Speak the truth in love. We support the faith. And we do this through our church, through our attendance and our giving. And then lastly, we share the faith. (laughs) We give it away. We give it away as we share with others as we have opportunity the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul said it best long ago. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it is, it what? The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Folks, our culture, if it is to be saved, It's going to be saved by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. That's it. And we as God's people, as the salt and the light, need to understand that in the day when our faith is under fire, it's not a place for us to cower back, fold our faith up in a napkin, and bury it out somewhere in the ground. But we take this treasure God has entrusted to us and share it in the world in which we live. Maybe this morning you're uncertain about your faith. God doesn't intend for our life to be a question mark but an exclamation point. And when I ask you today, do you know where you're sitting right now that you, if you were to die today, you'd go to heaven? Are you certain about your salvation? I don't want you to pull out a baptismal certificate. I want you to tell me, are you certain right where you see it that you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? If you don't, then, oh, listen, let's talk. Give me a chance to take the Word of God, not because I've got anything special, but I can take the Word of God and show you how you can have assurance of your salvation because the Bible's full of it. Maybe you've not been baptized. You say, well, I'm just not real certain. No wonder. Baptism is that public public testimony of our faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe you need a church home. I don't know what's on your heart today, but but the bill's going to come, and we're going to have an invitation. This will be your time to respond. Let's stand together, please.